Dr. Hicks is a professor of medicine at Duke uh, and uh, very heavily involved in uh, both uh, Duke's uh, AIDS clinical trials unit uh, and uh, the AIDS service at Duke. Has a wealth of uh, experience in HIV medicine and has put together some very interesting cases. Unlike Dr. Gallant, he was not too shy to share them with you. Uh, and so they're in your book. I know those of you who didn't get back from lunch were out um, doing internet searches and things to try to be able to, uh, to get it sorted out. So uh, we will tolerate fewer, um, less diversity in your answers than when you had the pop quiz this morning. So uh, without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Chuck to lead the discussion. And uh, we will have um, Drs. Gallant, um, Dr. Hsu, and Dr. Folensby uh, as members of the panel. And uh, I will sit at the end and watch. So thank you. Welcome, Chuck. And uh, welcome back, everybody. It's for a speaker. It's the dreaded first talk after lunch spot. But I hope to do a couple things to keep you engaged. The first is uh, I fairly extensively revised the talk, so your handout will only vaguely resemble what we're going to see. But the content will essentially be the same. And most things that I think you'd find interesting will be covered in the slides. But if you're one of the people that likes to follow along slide by slide, I fear there may be some disappointment. Second thing is, this is kind of a hybrid of a presentation and a case discussion, so I'd like to try and make both those things try to work in a, a coherent fashion here. So let me find the changer and we'll get started. It's a little difficult because Joel already did a superb job talking about uh, initial treatment, some of the new drugs and so on. So I'm going to try and cover some of that same material, but when we get to the cases in particular, I'm going to try and take a, a somewhat different angle as we move forward. So let me go back to when I first arrived at Duke in uh, the end of 1993. I hadn't been there long, and those of you who remember back to those days, it was fairly desperate times. Many of our patients would die at, in our Duke clinic at the end of each academic year. We had a little ceremony where we read the names of all of our patients who died in the previous year. And it was quite a long list. It was a very sad and difficult time. And around that time, uh, we also began to have glimmers of hope that new drugs were going to be coming that would begin to make a difference. When all of a sudden, this fella, uh, William Lamb, PhD, I have no idea where he got his PhD, uh, came to our clinic and said, uh, I have got something that you're just going to be so uh, delighted with. I have figured out the cure to AIDS. And this is my book, and this is actually a picture of the cover of his book. And then he had boxes of these jars of concoctions that he wanted us to sell in the clinic, and he would split the take 50-50. So he, this not only is this man an idiot, but he's an evil idiot, because he was trying to take advantage of people who had a desperate situation. They had an essentially uniformly fatal disease for which our treatments were grossly imperfect. And now, 2012, we find ourselves in a much different place, fortunately for both patients and providers alike, but there are still nuances and issues that we're grappling with as we try and make this work better. So just to introduce the general topic, let me present patient HH, 32-year-old man, uh, come to see you recently diagnosed. He's a registered nurse and works different shifts in your hospital, obviously a job that requires attention to detail. He recently found to be HIV infected. His partner is also HIV infected. He says they have a long-term monogamous uh, relationship. His, uh, his uh, liver and renal function is fine. He's not co-infected. 
He has mild hypertension, follows up with an internist for that, takes hydrochlorothiazide, blood pressure is well controlled. His initial CD4 counts 430, viral load just over 90,000. Uh, comes back a month later for his second visit, his CD4 is a little bit lower, 389, viral load's 87,000. He feels pretty good overall, says he's tired, but he relates that largely to his work. He says he doesn't sleep all that great because he does change shifts uh, due to the nature of his work, and he's anxious about his falling CD4 counts, high viral load, and he wants to start ART. So Joel, you kind of introduced us to this kind of a patient, just based on these concepts. Tell me in a moment what you might consider telling him and suggesting he might do. Well, one of the things we haven't discussed yet today, I don't think, because we haven't had a, a forum about it, is that the new guidelines now recommend uh, treatment for everybody regardless of CD4, with the strength of the recommendation being stronger at low CD4 or, and, and weaker at high CD4. So. Uh, clearly, uh, this guy's a candidate. He was a candidate by the old guidelines with CD4 less than 500, and he's still a candidate now. The declining CD4 is a, a, an important um, consideration. The high viral load, the fact that he's interested is a, is a no-brainer, so absolutely. Right, and he's a registered he's nurse. He has a good job. He has access to treatment, so it seems like things are aligned. So let's take a look at uh, what our situation here is in 2012. As you know, there are many groups that provide guidelines for therapy, and a little bit later in one of the cases, we're going to talk about a, a somewhat of a deviation, if you will, from what's been standard for a long time. But if you go to the IASUSA publication uh, from JAMA in 2010, as well as the most recently revised DHHS guidelines, which were actually updated uh, just last month, you uh, find some unanimity of opinion in that the Preferred regimens continue to be two nucleosides, and the nucleoside component for the preferred regimen is consistently tenofovir and FTC as a fixed-dose combination. And then that's combined, as you all know, with one of four options, the Fabrens and NNRTI, two protease inhibitor regimens, both boosted with ritonavir or the integrase inhibitor, raltegravir. And the basis for these recommendations I will review very quickly with you the tenofovir FTC, you may think back a few years, just at the time when uh, Glaxo had uh, verified the value of genetic screening for the, the Abacavir hypersensitivity syndrome and had just reached the point in the DHHS guidelines where they were also noted as a preferred combination, the Abacavir 3TC, uh, issues arose that rather quickly demoted them out of the preferred category, and, and some of them had to do with toxicity. But probably the thing I think that had the biggest impact on the panel was the results from ACTG 5202, which was a direct head-to-head -head comparison not only of Abacavir 3TC versus Tenofovir FTC as the nucleoside component, but also compared Afavirans to uh, Ritonavir-boosted Adesanavir. And without going into the details, it's quite easy to see. So these lines, you want your line to be as high as possible because that's the likelihood that you remain free of virologic failure. And here are the lines for the various categories uh, among those who took Tenofovir FTC with either Afavirans or boosted Adesanavir. And here are the same categories for Abacavir 3TC. And, and just the eyeball test, if you will, it's, it's apparent 
that the Abacvir 3TC combination doesn't seem to quite measure up. And this, combined with concerns that, that arose vis-a-vis uh, -vis toxicity, including some increased toxicity among Abacvir 3TC recipients in this study, uh, quickly led to a demotion, if you will, of Abacvir 3TC out of the preferred category. This, of course, is not the only study, and there are certainly uh, studies which also look at uh, cardiovascular risk and other adverse event profiles, which I won't go into, but here are three uh, randomized trials that compare Abacavir 3TC to Tanofer FTC, and you can see that they're not all the same. They don't all show that Tanofavir FTC appears to be better but on balance, looking at all the available data, I think it's not hard to understand why Tanopher FTC has become the preferred regimen. So if I were to summarize where we are in 2012 with the nucleoside component, first I would say that that remains, at least by our current guidelines, part of the essential necessity of antiretroviral therapy. And for most, most patients, Tanopher FTC appears to be the preferred option with cautions in those with pre-existing renal dysfunction or at risk for significant renal disease. And also, I think those uh, in which uh, uh, bone mineral density may be an issue, and we might be able to come back and talk about that a bit later. Abacavir 3TC remains an alternative. Should be, uh, an HLA B5701 screening should be done to uh, diminish the likelihood that uh, hypersensitivity syndrome will occur because of concerns that have been identified in patients with cardiac risk factors and the fact that uh, be, being on therapy with a back of ear may also increase the risk of myocardial infarction. I think, as Joel's case pointed out this morning, multiple cardiac risk factor population may also be a concern for back ear 3TC. And in uh, ACTG 5202, the difference primarily in efficacy was identified in those with higher viral loads. Now, there are other groups of patients, including pregnant women, for which there uh, may be a third option, AZT3TC, and we'll talk about that a bit more as we develop one of the cases. Now, what about the third drug? If we kind of reach some agreement that Tanofer FTC is our preferred nucleoside component, what about the third drug? We've listed the four here in your handouts. You see the some compilation of advantages and disadvantages, afavirins, adazanavir, ritonavir, darunavir, ritonavir, or raltegravir. Let's just briefly look at a little bit of the data. First, going back to the ACTG 5202, um, we had a, a part of the comparison was between the nucleoside components, but there was also comparison between the, quote, third drug, unquote. And here you can see that the difference in outcome between those who were randomized to, to the afavirins as the third drug or boosted azanavir really was not statistically significant. So hence, those two options, at least in terms of treatment efficacy, appear to uh, be essentially equivalent to one another. The non-PI, non-NNRTI drug that's in there so far is the integrase inhibitor raltegravir. And as an initial therapy option, the data really comes from the Starkmerk trial, and in trying to update this using new data from CROI, the 192-week follow-up data was presented. And interestingly, the red line, again, this is the proportion of patients with viral load less than 50 copies now at 
192 weeks of follow-up. It's 76% with raltegravir, 67% with efavirenz, and this difference actually was statistically significant. This is perhaps the only or certainly one of the very few head-to-head randomized prospective trials where the comparator drug had a better virologic response than did efavirenz. Now, this difference only really became evident as we got out to 192 weeks, but nonetheless, I think it more firmly establishes, in my mind, the value of raltegravir as one of our options for initial therapy. There are more coming, as Joel alluded to. There's the so-called QUAD, which consists of our preferred nucleoside combination, tenofovir-FTC, now combined with the integrase inhibitor L-vitegravir and the pharmacologic booster Covisistat. The decision date for the FDA is August 27th of this year. It will likely be approved. That being true, probably be available to be prescribed as of September of this year. Covisistat is also being developed as a standalone booster. As was also mentioned this morning, it's being studied in a fixed-dose combination with darunavir and also probably adesanavir, and will continue this trend of combining drugs into single-tablet regimens to facilitate dosing ease. And finally, dolutegravir, the other integrase inhibitor, does not require pharmacologic boosting, has a profile that indicates it will be a once-daily drug, and it is being developed to be a co-formulated single-tablet with a bacavir-3-TC, and it's being developed by VEEV, which used to be the HIV assets of Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline. You've seen this. This is the QUAD data. It shows that compared, again, to tenofovir-FTC efavirenz arm, it was quite successful. And so that brings us to where we are now, and we're going to use this background to kind of step forward and examine a couple of cases. If we look at where we are and where our trends are taking us, we have the single-tablet options that are growing and will continue to grow. I think most of us, I personally was surprised at how much of a difference it seemed to make for many patients. There was something magical. There was something that just reached them at a visceral level about only having to take one pill a day to treat their HIV. It kind of transformed it from, I have this disease and I have to take all these medicines, to this is like my taking my vitamin pill. Just take one of these a day. So for whatever reason, I think this has turned out to be a really, for the most part, a positive trend. There are, as mentioned, some other co-formulated products that are being made. Joel talked a little bit about the concept of nucleoside sparing because of some of the issues we have with tenofovir and nabacavir. The use of CCR5 antagonists like Mravirac as initial therapy and new entry inhibitors are in clinical trials development. So I think things are still proceeding. But we're also at a situation where generic drugs for HIV may be beginning to appear in a way that could impact the way we take care of HIV-infected patients. Yeah, just because we had questions this morning about some of our abbreviations, 
maybe Sorry. just to um, go back to the slide yeah. and remind people that RPV is real pivoring, yeah. marketed and co-formulated as Complera. Right. And the G is Elvitegravir. GS7340 is the pro-drug for tenofovir. It can be given in a much lower dose if their trials work because it is concentrated in lymphocytes and will allow drug at the site of activity to be uh, to reach uh, active levels with a much lower systemic dose. Um, COBE is Cobicistat, the pharmacologic booster, and I think that covers yeah, most of the DTG is Dolutegravir. I'm sorry about that. Just, you kind of start talking yeah, no. this <laughs> strange language and yes. assume everybody just gets it. Um, Here's the thing about single tablet regimens. This is David Banksberg's data from here in San Francisco that seems to show that in the orange bars, which are the mean adherence in this difficult to treat population, seem to be improved with single tablet regimens. Um, uh, and, and so I think we're at a point now, as we look at these data, where we appear to have two diverging pathways that we are approaching. One of them seems to be an increased number of co-formulated products, single tablet regimens, combination drugs. And this, most of us and patients would say, is a good thing. On the other hand, we're, the AIDS Drug Assistance Program, other federally, federally funded programs are under increasing financial pressure. Part of that a consequence of the success of antiretroviral therapy. People are living a long time. When we add 100 new patients to the ADAP role, we're not taking away 100 patients as we did back in 1993 and 94. There are only a few that are either no longer eligible because they got a good job and that's a good thing, or that they died for some reason and that's a bad thing. But when you add 100 people to the publicly funded treatment program and you only take away 10 and you plus up 90 every month, you're breaking the bank because you're paying $20,000 and change a year for antiretroviral therapy. So on the one hand, we like the ease, simplicity, and treatment success. But on the other hand, we're having a lot of trouble figuring out how we're going to be paying for this. And if we add on top of that the cost of treating hepatitis C and the use of uh, tenofovir FTC as PrEP, we're going to start to really struggle with the funding if we're not already at the point where we're really struggling. So on the other side are generic drugs. And this is a not 100% accurate, but at least gives us a ballpark view of when drugs appear to go off patent. Every company jealously guards their patent rights. And around the time that drugs are going off patent, Many, many petitions and law legal actions are filed because each day that the company can delay the approval of generics usually means tens of millions of dollars of increased revenue. So these dates are not fixed in stone. But one thing you begin to note as we move through 2011, 2013, is we're going to start to hit some fairly important drugs. And I think the one that could make a real difference in terms of what we're going to do with the uh, generics is a fibrance. Currently available generic drugs, and there are a few, most of you probably haven't even thought about using them, are not the drugs that we preferentially use as our preferred treatment. 
But the availability of generic efavirenz may, in fact, turn out to be something of a game changer. And I think the economic realities of antiretroviral therapy will likely force some of our fixed-dose tablets to be broken up and for us to start prescribing them in some a, a generic way. And the advantages of the single-tablet regimens are now going to increasingly have to be weighed with the cost savings of generics. So let's get to an audience response question. A 40-year-old man, newly diagnosed HIV infection, CD4 counts 220, viral load 72,000. He has no health insurance. He's been uh, referred to your clinic. You've determined he's uh, eligible for your AIDS drug assistance program. And let's put this one year in the future. I'm going to try and see. I get Donna to invite me back. And we're going to be a year from now. And so the availability of new fixed-dose combinations is going to be part of the presumed environment in which we're talking. Are you going to prescribe fixed-dose tenofovir FTC efavirenz, fixed-dose tenofovir FTC rilpivirine, the two that are currently available, the so-called quad, based on L-vitegravir, fixed-dose tenofovir FTC plus now generic nevirapine or generic efavirenz, or AZT3TC generic plus generic efavirenz, an all-generic regimen, or will you pick something else? So let's start the music. Okay, let's see what we have. So we have um, about half of the people, and I guess I would probably put myself right there with number five, are going to use Tenofovir FTC and assuming the availability of a significant cost differential generic version of Favrin, say like that. About a third of people still like our most popular current regimen, fixed dose Tenofovir FTC and Favrin, and there's low levels of support for other things. So, Steve, what do you think? How do you think this generic change is going to play out in the clinic? Well, you know, I, I think that it's already played out. I mean, we are being asked to make decisions. Um, as a Kaiser physician, you know, we, <clears throat> I can tell you that when generic didanosine came out, we were asked about making conversions from brand name to generic, um, but we were not asked to make drug changes from, you know, uh, I, so I don't think we would be making you know, changes from a um, tenovir-based regimen to a zidovidine-based regimen. And so I think that as long as, you know, we still have our ability to prescribe and that maintains sort of a standard, uh, you know, I'm willing to look at generic uh, drugs if it matches the regimen. So my initial regimen would have been one or five. Um, some of us in the room, like me, remember before the combination when we had brand name mefavirenz, some patients didn't like the chain. They lost their dreams, vividly when they went to a triplus. They went back, asked to go back. Um, most of the time that didn't happen. But I think we know that these drugs can be tolerated in many different forms. And, and most people will agree that they can take two pills once a day as opposed to one. So I chose five as well. Joel? Well, I, you know, I think that it's an easier decision when you're switching from a brand-name drug to the same drug generic. But... You know, I'm going to say that I'd, uh, number three, the quad, there's going to be significant advantages to the quad. And while I suspect most of my patients currently on efavirenz will remain on efavirenz, for new starts, I, I, I anticipate that I'll probably be prescribing that a lot. The question is, when efavirenz is generic, will I be able to do that? 
uh, without first trying efavirenz? And will I be able to maintain people on that without switching to efavirenz? I think that's a harder question. Now, I live in Maryland where our ADAP for, is pretty generous and lets us do whatever we want, but I'm not sure how much that, longer that will last if efavirenz is 10% cheaper than brand name uh, drugs. And hopefully even more than 10% yeah. cheaper. Uh, well, I'm sorry, I meant 10% the price. Of the price. Okay, of yeah. the, 10% of the cheaper probably isn't That wouldn't be enough. No. Okay. Well, let's move forward a little bit uh, to our first case then. That introduced the concept of generics. Now let's think about what we're going to do for a specific situation. This is a 27-year-old woman, African-American woman, recently diagnosed as HIV infected when she went for a GYN screening. And I put annual there, knowing that not all women are appropriate to be annually screened, but she went in to get a woman's health check and a pap smear. And during the evaluation, she talked with her gynecologist obstetrician and said she really was ready to start a family. She, she and her husband had discussed this, and, and they felt like this was a good time. However, part of the evaluation in his office included screening for HIV, and uh, Miss, uh, Mrs. TK was, in fact, HIV infected. Her CD4 count was 394, viral load 75,000, and she has wild-type virus. Physical exam is normal, otherwise in excellent health, currently on no medications. She understands that, in general, her, her HIV status is appropriate for antiretroviral therapy. She also is very concerned about being on any medications while she's trying to get pregnant. And if she has to take antiretroviral therapy, she wants the simplest regimen she can. So the first question is, based on her HIV status, would you think she should start antiretroviral therapy now, knowing that she's actively seeking to get pregnant, or because she's planning to, get, planning to get pregnant, should she defer until pregnancy is achieved and she's at least in the second trimester? So let's move forward. So the vast majority of people would advocate starting therapy. Priscilla, can I ask you to comment? Um, so I said number one, um, just because, you know, I think there's probably less of maternal fetal transmission if you start meds early, so as long as you select the correct regimen. Uh, but hopefully she's not coming to me for this, because I'd be the last person. <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, I, get, I get it. But, but, you know, we haven't had very many women on the panel. Okay. I thought we at least should get the women's perspective for a case of pregnancy. Chip, do you have any uh, thoughts about this? Are you concerned about any of the drugs that we are using and, and a woman becoming pregnant? No, I mean, I think you're, I know where you're about to go, so let me let you take it from here because okay. things are changing. But I, I agree with Priscilla. Okay, well, let me move it forward because I do think this is an important issue. And I think uh, the recommendations we have are perhaps a little anachronistic. But uh, for this particular woman, in your opinion, what's the best nucleoside combination? Tomfer FTC, Abacavir, 3TC, Zidovudine, 3TC, the three fixed dose combinations we have, or any of these would be fine. So let's vote. So uh, half of the audience is aligned with the guidelines for the management of pregnancy and HIV, 
and uh, agree with the idea that AZT3TC remains the combination of choice for nucleoside uh, therapy. About one in five like to know for FTC, there's a couple for Abacavir, and then some say any of these would be fine. So let me move forward a little bit, and then I'm going to involve the panel again in just a moment. What about the third drug? We have our preferred options, the two PIs and raltegravir. There's the protease inhibitor, lopinavir. Then we have efavirin. We have rilpivirine. RPV is rilpivirine. And then any of these is fine or something else. So let's vote. Okay, so again, we've aligned nicely with the guidelines. Half of the audience agrees that the guideline recommended combination for pregnancy, AZT, 3TC, and uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, fixed dose PI combination. We also have some, a couple other votes for PIs. We have a few that think raltegravir is okay. We have a very small rilpiprine. We have one uh, lonely soul who picked fopirins, uh, and then uh, nobody thought any of these would be fine. So let's move forward a little bit. Let me present a little more data, and then I'm going to come back and ask the panel for their opinions. So 2011 update on the perinatal guidelines. First, uh, indicate that if a woman is pregnant on therapy or is HIV positive and has indications for therapy and is thinking of getting pregnant, initiating or being on antiretroviral therapy is appropriate, should not stop therapy or defer therapy because people are interested in becoming pregnant. If, if the woman's own health indicates that treatment is appropriate, treatment should be administered. Now we have categories for our drugs based on the FDA assessment of their safety in pregnancy, and those are generally B, C, and D, and you can see where our antiretroviral agents line up there. Many people are not totally clear on what these mean. B, a category B drug by the FDA, means that animal reproduction studies have failed to demonstrate a risk to the fetus and that there are no adequate and well-controlled studies in pregnant women. A category C drug says that animal reproduction studies have shown an adverse event on the fetus. And again, there are no adequate well-controlled studies in humans, but the FDA says the potential benefits may outweigh the uh, risks. A D indicates there is not only animal problems, but there are reports of positive evidence of human fetal risk based on adverse reaction data. If we actually then categorize and look at the 2011 perinatal treatment guidelines update, the drugs that are indicated are those which the audience selected. AZT3TC are the nucleosides, lopinavir, ritonavir, and an alternative to lopinavir, ritonavir, could be nivirapine in women with CD4 counts less than 250, and then other alternates are listed there. However, there are reasons for potential pause. One of them is a study that was published in the Journal of Infectious Disease 2011. It's an older study. It compared women who were treated with protease inhibitors during pregnancy, lopinavir, ritonavir, plus AZT3TC, to women who received abacavir, AZT3TC, formerly known as trisevere. And what was identified was that the women on the protease inhibitor therapy had about twice the rate 
of preterm delivery. Now, this preterm delivery was only about two to four weeks earlier than full gestational age, but it occurred with twice the frequency. There was no increase in infant morbidity and mortality, but a concern was raised about whether or not protease inhibitors ought to always be part of the recommended regimen. I think very interesting to look at is the antiretroviral pregnancy registry. This is maintained by the FDA. It enrolls about 1,500 women a year. It, it identifies drugs that they were on during the first trimester of pregnancy and includes women whose delivery and follow-up is available and therefore can be recorded as part of the registry. In this slide, the number, and these are only women that had at least 200, only included are drugs for which were at least 200 women with first trimester exposure. And you can see these are the number of women and the number of birth defects that were identified in their babies. And two drugs stand out with higher rates. The background rate for women in general, not HIV infected, but just women delivering in the United States is about 2.7 per uh, 100,000, uh, per thousand. And uh, here you see the rates for DDI are significantly higher and the rates for nelfinavir, where's nelfinavir? Our nelfinavir, are significantly higher than the background. The other drugs, including, interestingly, efavirenz, are approximately the same as the background for HIV uninfected women in terms of the number of babies delivered with birth defects. Now, as a consequence of this and other data, the British HIV Medicine Association in their draft guidelines, have proposed a major change in how we view efavirenz in pregnancy. They said, among other things, it is recommended that women conceiving on an effective heart regimen should continue this even if it contains efavirenz or does not contain AZT. They do not propose adding AZT as though it has some particularly important properties in, in pregnancy. Moreover, they note that the classification of efavirenz as a category D pregnancy drug is based on preclinical animal studies that had not been conducted on any other antiretroviral treatment and the fact that there is in general a paucity of human data. The, the, the non-human primate studies were conducted on 20 synomologous macaques, three of which delivered babies that were born with significant abnormalities, one with anencephaly and unilateral anophthalmia, one with microophthalmia, and one had a cleft palate. However, uh, and then they also discussed the, whether or not tenofovir is reasonable rather than zidovudine, and also note that nevirapine is appropriate for CD4 less than 250, and they recommend either a boosted PI or efavirenz for women with CD4 counts greater than 250. So let's revisit TK. This is our young 27-year-old woman who was diagnosed with HIV infection during routine women's health visit. She's now back to see you again, and she's pregnant. She's about eight weeks pregnant. She has not yet started antiretroviral therapy. She declined it previously. Her CD4 counts now 320. Viral load still about 75,000, and now she wants to start antiretroviral therapy. 
So taking her pregnancy into account, how would you advise her regarding antiretroviral therapy? Eight weeks pregnant, should she defer to the second trimester? If she starts it, should she absolutely get AZT? And whereas many would say, no, no, tenofovir FTC efavirenz, which we might otherwise use in this woman eight weeks pregnant, we shouldn't use that. Or how about tenofovir FTC and ropivirine? Is that perhaps a preferred regimen for a woman who's pregnant because of our concerns about efavirenz? So let's vote on this one. Okay, so I was trying to steer people in a certain direction, but um, uh, whereas Tanoffer FTC apartment should not be used in the first trimester, it may be used in later trimesters, I should have followed this up by the question, does the data proposed by the British HIV Medicine Association impact your thinking about apartments? And Chip, let me ask you, what, what, what if anything you believe about apartments in pregnancy now? Well, I think, the, as you point out, um, the studies that were done in primates were done trying to be uh, sure, and they surprised everybody. But they're the only studies that have ever been done. And uh, as more experiences accumulate, there are a lot of women who conceived on efavirenz and found out later, and it's hard to, uh, hard to see that extrapolated to, to humans. So I think um, it's harder to be as, as rabid as we used to be about the emergency of getting people off of aberrants, women off of aberrants in the first trimester. So, um, and there's much less experience in women on rolpivirine, you could argue. Right. Uh, so I, I was okay with the aberrants myself. Joel? Well, I, I'm okay with it scientifically, but you've got to remember that the British have a lot fewer malpractice lawyers than we do. And if this child grows up and can't play the piano very well, I think we could be in for a problem. So I wouldn't start her on efavirenz at this point. I, I think, um, but I also wouldn't use AZT or, or lopinavir or ritonavir. I think that to give a woman combination of AZT and lopinavir or ritonavir when she's already nauseated from pregnancy is kind of cruel, with all due respect to the guidelines and 50% of the audience. Right. So I would probably use, uh, have used tenofovir FTC and, a more contemporary boosted PI. A boosted yeah. would probably be the choice that's most consistent with guidelines because it's considered an alternative in the guidelines, whereas Darunavir is in the category of not enough information. You're not dissuaded by the preterm delivery data? Um, it was with lopinavir, ritonavir. It was which in is a, our recommended. Which, which is the one I wouldn't be using anyway. Okay. And, it's, right. and it was done in a, in, a set, in a different setting. It had no adverse outcomes in terms of uh, the, the right. health. So, right. I mean, I, I think, you know, we have a lot of good data on, on PIs. Um, again, if she were further along in pregnancy, I might be more willing to use efavirenz. I definitely wouldn't use ropivirine for the reasons that are mentioned, that we, it was we too new. Have, we just don't yeah. have data. Right. Okay. Steve or Phil? <laughs> Maybe, well, yeah, sometimes in politics we vote for our, le our <laughs> least um, disfavored choice. That's the reason why I vote for three as well, and I agree with the comments that have been made. The question I have, I know we have, I think, one obstetrician in the audience at least, is what about atazanavir and hyperbilirubinemia? And even though it doesn't show up in the, um, you know, in the studies to date, I'm, I would just ask if anyone has any experience or concerns 
about that? You know, that, that was a big issue uh, when Indinavir came yeah. out because it did the same thing, right. and yes. everybody was worried about neonatal jaundice, and it really never seemed to be a problem. Now, Adizanavir does more of that than Indinavir yes. did, but uh, from the audience, comment. That is, that it can increase the risk of hyperbilirubinemia, but it's a benign problem that's easily treated. So, uh, I would say that most of the people I work with do favor Adizanavir in pregnancy. Great, thank you. Well, my light is turning orange, and so I, the the next case is about the issue of treating someone during an acute complicating uh, illness, which is also going to be covered. Uh, in the TB lecture, so I'm going to take the speaker's prerogative and of skipping the next couple of slides which deal with initiating. Please go on to the next one. Just by saying that uh, early initiation of therapy during the time of complicating uh, opportunistic infection appears to be a, a good idea with some exceptions, tuberculous meningitis, cryptococcal uh, meningitis perhaps being the differences. But uh, I just want to close uh, with a couple of slides that, that I always feel are important because they remind us of the extraordinary impact of what we do and what a difference it, it makes in, in people's lives. Here's uh, Rochelle Walensky's paper now from uh, five years ago uh, showing that antiretroviral therapy had saved three million years of life among men and women in the United States alone, that number is many-fold higher. So there aren't many disease states where the stakes are as high and good decisions have as big a payoff as does HIV. And I, I want to show one other thing, and apologies to Priscilla and the cardiologists and those in other fields, but I like to show this comparison because it has something to do with the impact of what we do. This is a, a, actually a compilation of some data that asks the question, how much additional life is accrued to a population of people with a condition by a particular intervention? So here, for example, a women with breast cancer who, who have surgery and uh, have no evidence of disease and are now being considered for adjuvant chemotherapy. If they have negative nodes, the use of adjuvant chemotherapy adds about a year, a little over a year of additional life to each woman in that population. If they are node positive, it's perhaps four to six months. Coronary artery bypass surgery or um, uh, uh, angioplasty, remember this is for the whole population. So some people are going to man be managed by medical management because their disease is difficult. Some people will die from uh, their acute intervention. But overall, if you get bypass surgery or revascularization from angioplasty, I guess that's not really revascularization, you add about a year and a half, perhaps two years, to the population total. So everyone in the population, on average, that intervention. If you get a bone marrow transplant, and it, in people with lymphoma, that that's the preferred therapy. You get about seven years of additional life. This is antiretroviral therapy from five years ago. This bar now is through the roof. Despite our reservations about some of the issues related to antiretroviral therapy, I don't think anyone could argue that there's been an intervention that has made a bigger impact on patients from the beginning of the epidemic here in San Francisco and elsewhere 30 years ago 
to where we exist today. So the last slide says half of what we have taught you is wrong, and we do not know which half. So the things we've learned in the 1918 prior times we've met here in San Francisco to talk about this, a lot of those were really wrong, but at the time they seemed right. So this just says, you know, those of us who've chosen human health as our field of endeavor, people are coming to us trusting their health, their very lives to our decisions. You have to be a student forever so you learn what's right and what's wrong about what we do. So I'm slightly over Steve and Chip, sorry about that, and uh, appreciate the comments of the panel. Okay, we have a few questions here for, to the panel and things. Um, the uh, first is a, a genotype shows Presumably, an M184B mutation. Uh, does this rule out the use of the of the quad pill? Joel, do you want to take a stab at that? My my usual practice is when I know somebody has a 184V is to use a PI-based regimen um, because I look at the uh, you know uh, what we have now with the Favrins and Rilpivirine single tablet regimens um, as being somewhat similar with the quad where you have uh, a, a drugs with lower barrier to resistance. Now, that being said, I'm sure I have plenty of patients who are on efavirenz-based regimens and have a 184V that I'm not even aware of and are doing just fine with it. But um, it is a, a truly a two-drug regimen, and I think the same could be said for the quad. So if I know that they have a 184V, I'm generally going to pick, pick a, a PI. Okay, in Seattle, Truvada is the most commonly used backbone for pregnant women. Are we worried about bone formation in the fetus where it's a little drier uh, in Southern California? <laughs> uh, Steve, do you want to uh, uh, give us your opinion about that? Yes, we're worried, but we don't have any evidence about, um, at this point, about that concern. But, yes, we're worried. Okay. And, Joel, um, when we're, um, where, where, do you, where do you see Complera fitting? Uh, what's, what's your ideal patient for Complera? Well, the patients I prescribed it to have been people who aren't great candidates for efavirenz, maybe because of difficult work shifts or, or people who've already had difficulty tolerating it, but who have uh, relatively low baseline viral loads and who are very adherent, because I think it's a, maybe a little less forgiving of non-adherence. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens when the quad becomes available, because the quad will address a lot of those issues, but without the viral load caveat, the meal restrictions, and the issue about proton pump inhibitors. But uh, so I don't know yet what, where Complera will fit in after the quad becomes available. But for now, that's been sort of the type of patients that I've been using it in. Or people who, um, say, hadn't tolerated a Favrin, switched to a boosted PI, but always wished they could be on one pill once a day and then kind of switch back. So, Joel, along those lines, can I ask you, if you looked at all the people in your clinic in, in Baltimore who are on that fixed-dose combination, Rilpivirine, did most of them get there by that was their very first regimen ever, or did most of them get there as a switch from Tenofovir FTC of Favrins? Yeah. I can't say that we have a lot of people on it, but I would say that of my patients who are on it, it's a little of each, maybe more switches than first starts, but I have a few uh, who started it uh, from the beginning. Okay, and then we have two more questions related to pregnancy. I'll lump them both together because um, they in some ways are touching on the same point. One is... Um, how we can legally consider not using all Category B drugs, and the other is what the evidence from the National Pregnancy Registry is about the tolerance. 
Chuck, you're the... Yeah, uh, yeah well, I'm not the expert. Please don't say the expert, because no, I am not an expert in this, but I'll answer the second one question, uh, question first. The, there are, uh, the numbers there in, the, in your handouts, uh, I think something over 700 women who have received defavorins during the first trimester of pregnancy remained on the drug, delivered a child, and the outcomes of the pregnancy are known. And the rate of fetal malformations, I believe, was 2.6 or 2.7, which is identical, in essence, to that of background, which is to say HIV uninfected women having babies on no drugs or whatever their environmental circumstances are. So at least from those 700-plus women, there is no apparent increase in fetal malformations or birth defects related to first trimester exposure of efavirenz. The first part was about category B drugs and why we shouldn't be constrained to just using category B drugs because they appear to be the safest. You'll recollect from my hurried, hurried presentation that the difference between category B and category C is meaningful in that one has evidence of, of fetal malformations, the other does not, but these are animal models, and at best animal models are imperfect predictors of outcome in humans, but for obvious reasons we don't do randomized controlled trials of new drugs in women who become pregnant. So we're left to make inferential decisions if there are reasons that a category C drug appears to be a better choice for the health of the mother, I think most would agree that a healthy mother delivering a baby, uh, uh, using drugs that are the best selected for her to achieve an undetectable viral load and immune reconstitution probably outweighs any theoretical benefits from using drugs without animal model uh, abnormalities associated with them. I would just want to add that I think the, the FDA categorization is less helpful for us than the perinatal guidelines categorization because you look at the example, ropivirine, I think, is a category B, even though there's zero experience zero, in pregnancy. Right. So I, I would much rather look at the perinatal guidelines, and, and although I may not always follow them, at least I find that more relevant for, a, for our population. And many times when these things have become legal, the thing that uh, is most important is to document why you made the decision when you made it up front. And right, although this is not a category B drug or something along those lines, the likelihood of success, treatment success in this woman is substantially higher, and the risk of not successfully treating her, vi her virus and transmitting the virus to the baby, um, and you can fill out the rest of the paragraph. That goes a lot farther than an argument about guidelines four years later when there's a lawsuit about piano playing. Okay, so I think we should uh, cease and desist so we have time for uh, the last two talks. Thanks, everybody, for participating in the panel, and thanks for the great cases, Chuck. And uh, we'll move on.